Yeah, it's hard to get like as excited when the music is like softer in my ears, right? Yes, it's really. I'm not as pumped now, but we just have to do with it, Tegan. We just have to welcome do with to it. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes, everyone. Hello, welcome to the podcast, Tegan. How have you been? It's good to see you. Like we've been, we had a little bit uh, of a of a break. Like we're one week behind in our recording schedule. Yeah, we had plague caught by everybody, and yeah. Yeah, life is busy and then the plague comes and knocks yeah. you out. And Un- Unfortunately, we're not like plants that don't get influenza. Like I would really like to not have had influenza virus. But I guess they have their own problem. Yeah, at least, yeah. I mean, I could have gotten like a mosaic virus. That would have been more annoying. It seems like a really good segue for you to be like, and by the way, today I'm talking <coughs> about plant viruses, but actually you're not. It's no, just I, like... I'm, I'm, I'm really not talking about plant viruses. What are you talking about today? Um, today, like, yeah, it's jump, let's just jump into the first paper. I'm talking about the paper that I will be pulling up now. <laughs> <laughs> we're very well organized here. Um, it's Sunday morning in case anybody's um, playing at home and we're yeah. a little bit sleepy still. Yeah, I've, we never recorded that early. I think I never recorded anything ever in my life this early. <laughs> just to have some hyperbole. Um, okay, my my first paper um, is called Cyanobacterial Anti-Metabolite 7 Deoxycetoheptalose Blocks the Shikimati Pathway to Inhibit the Growth of Phototrophic Organisms. Anti-metabolite. Anti-metabolite, yeah. Which I never heard of before. Yeah, same for me. It was, was a thing, but luckily they introduced that word in the, in the introduction of the paper. And to be honest, it's... I think it's a fancy word for something that's actually quite well understood so far, um, but we'll, we'll go into this in a minute. First, to sort of introduce this paper that is by, by uh, Klaus Berilli Sauer, Johanna Rapp, Pascal Rath, Anna Schöllhorn, Lisa Bleuel, Elisabeth Weiss, Mark Stahl, Stefanie Grund und, and Karl Fochhammer. Und Karl. <laughs> und Karl Fochhammer. Germany represent. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a, from, a, from a German group. Um, Uh, published in Nature Communications in 2019, so a fairly recent paper. And first, to get into that, I want to talk a little bit about herbicides in general. Like, why do we use herbicides? Um, And yeah, they have a pretty bad reputation, right? Like, when you talk about herbicides, people are like, nah, it's the the poison that people put on the field. I mean, some people... (laughs) Yeah, some people do, but I, f- I think it's even people who are not on the on the spectrum of anti um, everything uh, <laughs> anti agriculture anti technology. Even those people are very careful about it, have, or like um, uh, what's the word? Like they A don't bit really cautious. Like, cautious. Yeah, they don't really. Yeah, like I think I mean because they're supposed to kill certain plants, but it's hard yeah. to like be specific for some plants, and then you can also like damage the ecosystem by hitting like off targets. Right? This is the, yeah. the argument. Yeah. So just to um, why do we even care about herbicides is because they're really important for farming um, because what I, I wrote down here is they protect investments from destruction and this sounds very like sort of capitalist right you have this money that you have to protect there but I like to think also in, in terms of like in environmental damage is if you think you have a field growing and you put a lot of energy into growing whatever crop you have and then you have some some pests some other plants outgrowing your crop it's a huge loss, fi- not only financially, but also in terms of um, like CO2 equivalents, like all the diesel that you put in your tractor to run it up and down your field. All of that, that goes to waste if you can't really harvest any crops. So it's also from an environmental standpoint, it's really important to control sort of the growth of like non-crop plants. On your field. And I mean, in the end, the investment, what you're getting out of it is food that we need to eat, right? Yeah. So this is... And if you, if you think about like land use and all of these things and the, the less efficient our agriculture is, the more land we need to have the same amount of crop harvested and all of this. So that's why herbicides in general are something that farmers like to use. It's not that, uh, that there is like a big agricultural corporation that forces them to use it. There is a big application for it and that's why there's a lot of research going into it and a lot of demand for it as well. Um, and just in general, herbicides, they can they can function in different ways. You touched it already with like the selective and the non-selective um, herbicides. And uh, I just briefly looked into this a little bit, but there are like the selective herbicides that can just target specific groups of plants. Like there are some that are, for example, grass specific. So only gr- um, monocots or grass-like plants are killed by these. While if you then grow a, a dicot crop, uh, crop that's not a grass, then this will be not affected or not as much affected by this herbicide. And then you have some other non-selective herbicides that can target lots of, pa- of plants. 
um, and some other qualities that are important for herbicides um, that will also be important later when we discuss like the outcome of this paper is things like mobility so how much can it move around when you spray it can it be like washed mm -hmm. off with the water um, uh, and get as runoff into into rivers and so on the persistence so how long it stays uh, active and um, before it's degraded then off-target effects to other organisms that you don't want to target and the human toxicity which which is a big point like often related uh, or expressed in um cancer uh, in induction or like how cancer cancerogenic Cas carcinogenic carcinogenic yeah. so like generally compounders. the method is that you just spray these herbicides on this is like the the standard application process yeah okay. um i mean there are some where you yeah most of the time they're sprayed but they're sprayed at different times that's also a very important mm -hmm. factor so some of them you spray on the soil before you Uh, plant your seeds and then it sort of stay in the soil and suppress growth of target organisms um, then there's some that you spray on the green when the, there's the emergence of, of pests and then you spray your herbicide on them and so then they take it up and die um, and there's also some others um, that you use then, then later uh, for before you want to harvest um, Yeah, just to, I, I looked a little bit like what are the two most used herbicides. And the first one is actually one that I hadn't heard of before. It's called 2.4-D, or the long name is 2.4-D-chlorophenooxyacetic uh, acid, I think. I mean, you've got to have a catchy name, guys. This is like super, I mean, the second one yeah. I'm going to get, it's Roundup. Is that true? Or? Yeah. Does, yeah, does, so Roundup's got the catchy name. Like, that's yeah. why you know about I it. I mean, it's glyphosate. It's the active common. I think for the 2.4D, there's also like a fancy like brand name that that's in the mixture. Um, but both of them are around for decades now. Um, the 2.4D was discovered in the 50s and has been in use since then um, as a defoliant. That means it's a, something that you spray to um, have... Take leaves off. Yeah, to have the plants lose their leaves and stop growing. And then you have glyphosate, which is the other one that's, all, that's now in the media a lot. Um, that's probably the most well-known... Um, herbicide in use i'm googling 2.4d and i'm not seeing a catchy name like marketing people get get on this now <laughs> this is a problem i Sorry. don't think they really have a problem with marketing being the most used herbicide in the world but if i don't know about it it's not important <laughs> right Okay, sorry. Yeah, and uh, both of these are also used not only um, to suppress the growth of um, weeds during like the early phase of, of agriculture, but also as a desiccant before harvest. So when um, you want, before you harvest certain like cereals, um, es yeah, especially cereals like uh, some, some beans and some and weed and uh, things like that, um, you want the plants to dry out before you harvest them so before people would be like very cautious about the weather and they would try to p pick the f perfect day to harvest them so that the to prevent rotting is that the yeah, idea to, pre okay. to prevent rotting because you don't want to have too much w uh, water in your grain when you harvest it or in your in your peas um and also it's Uh, easier for the machines if you don't have as many leaves on there like if they dry mm -hmm. out and fall off and so what you can use these uh, both herbicides for is to spray them just before you want to harvest and then they sort of uh, die off but the grain stays undamaged because it's already fully formed and um, then they uh, are pretty dry and then you can harvest them much easier and also uh, less dependent on the weather so you can even do that when there is a rainy season ahead you can spray them or and or if the, you have high moisture in the air and stuff mm -hmm. like that in summer sometimes you have these wet summers then you can still harvest your your plants um that otherwise might be lost. So um, in the cool. US, it's very common to do that. In, in the EU, you can only do that under spe specific circumstances because the downside of this is that obviously you have way more residue on your harvested crops. Like sure. if you spray it in May and harvest in August, by the time most of it is already degraded or not uh, like diluted by plant growth. But if you spray it just before you harvest it, you will have residual uh, herbicides on your, on your crops. Just like I like to like a little bit of a general introduction to the herbicides because this is something that when I talk to people they often have no idea about they think it's just like people go around with like a full hazmat suit and spray things out of because they're evil but it's they have a very important role in modern agriculture and now just uh, a little bit about glyphosate because this is as the one of the most well-known ones and will be become important in the paper um, so glyphosate is one of the non-selective herbicides right the ones that kill uh, all green plants um, 
and don't distinguish between monocots or dicots or any other groups within the plant world. Um, and um, the interesting thing about it is that it blocks a pathway that's called a shikimate pathway. Mm -hmm. um, and do you know what this is important for? It makes certain um, amino acids in plants. It makes these aromatic amino acids that we can't produce. Um, and maybe the, our, our listeners might remember from, from their... Um, high school biology that humans have some essential amino acids and non-essential amino acids which it means the non-essential ones we can produce ourselves and the essential ones we have to get from food because we can't produce them mm -hmm. and we have to rely on plants to produce them and um, this is one of the pathways to produce some of these essential amino acids for us which also means that blocking this pathway can't affect us because we don't we have the pathway basically yeah we don't and have these these like are aromatic it's including like phenylalanine and 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 uh, tyrosine yeah tyrosine and the third one uh, that i should know off the top of my head because i read it like 10 times tryptophan <coughs> it's tryptophan yeah tryptophan and um there's it blocks a specific enzyme in this pathway it's the epsp synthase mm -hmm. and epsp stands for a very long uh, metabolite um that i won't pronounce <laughs> um but uh, yeah, the glyphosate itself, it's from its structure, is very simple. So it's a, a phosphate group linked through a carbon to a, a nitrogen, then another carbon and a carboxy group. So it's very small. It's okay. like, um, it just has um, three carbons and it has a phosphor and a nitrogen and some additional groups, but very simple structure. And um, it blocks this enzyme at the phosphoenol pyruvate binding site. So it, it just mimics um, a actual metabolite and blocks the um, enzyme, and that's what makes it an anti-metabolite, sort of. It's, uh, it takes uh -huh. the role of the metabolite, and that's why they come up in the paper with this name, anti-metabolite. So an anti-metabolite is actually kind of a metabolite anyway. Yeah. It's just... It's just sort of okay. the, the... It's non-natural, I guess, is kind of the point as well. I mean, not naturally within this system they're applying, it, yeah? Yeah, and okay. it's like the... Um, like in in comic books, when you have like the anti-hero, like the the opposite the opposite of the hero to the hero, you sometimes have like the black character, like the black Spider-Man compared to the red Spider-Man and stuff like that. And I guess the herbicide companies don't want us to think in those terms. I mean, it's not like <laughs> this is the anti-matter to your matter. Like this is not really an ideal marketing. I mean, we shouldn't be marketers. I think we agree. Yeah. Um, okay. Anti-metabolites. And. Um, yeah, so this pathway only exists in plants, but also in some microorganisms. So glyphosate can't really harm us directly. Like it doesn't have um, a target in our path in our metabolism, but it does have a pathway in some microorganisms that you know, also produce um, these um, these amino acids. Do you know which microorganisms that includes? It's it's, like it's some a wider, fungi or some. It's a wider range. It's definitely some fungi. Um, later in the paper, that for example, they tested Saccharomyces cerevisiae as a so yeast. common yeast as a, a model organism. Um, they have the pathway, but the thing about microorganisms is that most of the time they also have pathways to take up these amino acids, so they can compensate for it. So okay. under when they have a very good nutritional system they are not as much affected by, by glyphosate or anything that blocks one specific pathway um, that produces something like f f the amino acids. Um, but as soon as they get on minimal media or when they are under starving conditions, then this becomes a major factor. Um, yeah. Uh, some more things about glyphosate is that it um, only works on green and growing tissue, so it has to be taken up through the leaves, and mm -hmm. only when the plant grows and needs these uh, amino acids, then it can work. When it is done growing and it has all its amino acids, then it's not as effective anymore. So that's why most of the time it's just used when you have this emergence of, of weeds, when they're like actively growing, trying to become big, then you spray it and all of them die off. Um, it has a comparably short half-life. It's just 47 days and then half of uh, the amount of the substance is already degraded by microorganisms. Um, there's many microorganisms that can use it as a food source. Um, but it is uh, widely it is wisely used but shunned by organic farming so mm -hmm. uh, in organic farming and general in public they really hate glyphosate it's it's a standard for a lot of things that are actually wrong with modern I mean, agriculture yeah so the eu <coughs> just um had this idea that uh, glyphosate can be used for another i think five years they extended the yeah. the safe usage but there was a lot of backlash from the public um about potential dangers of glyphosate and of course whether it causes cancer is a really big debate that's going on in the media yeah. at the moment and i don't really want to judge um the 
the uh, carcinogen, carcinogenic uh, quality of it because that's that's one of the very complicated questions nowadays. Like there's different agencies that have uh, r- ruled in different ways. Um, some of them call it carcinogenic. Some others say it's safe uh, as long as it's used properly. Um, recently, I heard something that there is the European Court of Justice um, ruled that studies that Monsanto did on glyphosate have to be published that were before um, secret. Um, mm-hmm. So. It might it's very be, controversial as a topic. Yeah, it's yeah. very controversial, but it ha- it's definitely, in terms of, of herbicides, I looked at some of the others, it's one of the milder ones because it's so very specific to green plants. Like mm. the alternative to glyphosate are all more toxic and um, have more off-target effects than glyphosate. So it's very prob- um, it's, it's a pro- difficult question to answer whether or not it's in general a good and thing or a bad thing. And often there's like a lot of political and like economic issues that get like mixed in with this argument about so the argument should just be about whether it's safe but then you have these ideas that oh it's been used for less time so therefore it's less safe or you know it's owned by monsanto is this a copyright so therefore it's it's worse there's a lot of other issues that get dragged into this issue about the actual safety of it so And then you have the entire discussion about GMO because it's one of the first um, herbicides where there were engineered resistances um, in crop plants that were then used um, yeah, so you could spray your field and your your crops would be safe and everything else would die off. And the extended extensive use of this led then now to like spontaneous mutations of weeds that are resistant. So you have like this emergence of resistance. So it's a complicated <laughs> issue. Um, and I think it's important to discuss whether or not glyphosate should be used or not. But um, the point here is that it's just, it's a very potent compound. Um, and the last bit of my introduction now is uh, organic farming. What about organic farmers? Um, they, I said already they hate glyphosate, but it doesn't mean that they don't use herbicides at all. Um, they, the main thing, at least in Europe, for the classification of organic herbicides is whether or not you can find them in natural sources. So glyphosate has been uh, artificially, synthetically created and, mm-hmm. and screened for, so there's no organism in the world that produces glyphosate. Um, uh, naturally Uh, and so this makes it um, not available for organic farming because yeah you need a a source organism that made it once but they use other herbicides they use uh, some inorganic compounds there's definitely there's salt solutions that are used copper sulfate i think is one of them yeah although copper sulfate nowadays like it's often a stand-in as a as an example of like a very toxic compound it's used in organic farming but as far as i know it's not used as much anymore um, it's sometimes used in in vine, uh, in like grape. in grape cultures, mm-hmm. um, but less and less popular. Less and less popular because it's a heavy metal iron and it's f- quite toxic and it stays forever in the ground. Um, but there's other salts that are used, um, and then there's um, uh, uh, other like general chemicals like acetic acids that are used. Like I looked up some in some stores where they that sell organic herbicides, and most of them are stuff like acetic acid or sometimes like plant oils. Like I found cinnamon oil and. Um, another plant oil that's in a mixture that you then spray um, and and kill off the plants with that. Um, mm. But in general... Um, I do like acetic acid. Like, <coughs> the smell reminds me of fish and chips for when I was a kid. <laughs> like sometimes um, in the lab, somebody's doing this um, method for staining and de-staining and this, the solution has like acetic acid and sometimes you can boil it in the microwave to like make it speed up. And then it just smells like being on the hot beach. Like, like, acid, yeah. yeah, but for me, it's just like, it's the beach as a child, like having like hot fish and <laughs> chips. And yeah, it's super good. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, the thing with acetic acid is it's 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 an organic compound. Very you find it everywhere in nature, but um, it's just a very you just make the pH of the soil very unfavorable to have anything grow on there, and also like it acidifies your your soil for Which quite is not a long time. Really ideal, yeah. Yeah, it's it's also not great. So and can o- it also probably affect the mi- microorganisms in the soil, which would then yeah. yeah. And uh, but in general, organic farmers spray less often, and they try to avoid using sprayed plant protection. So, whenever they want to use it, they have to prove that they tried everything else before they start spraying. So, in general, in organic farming, it is true that they use um, less often. They use uh, herbicides, but when they do, they use also compounds that are toxic and that have uh, they come from different sources, but they might be just as toxic or in a toxic in a different level, like in a different area. Um, as like commercial industrial herbicides. So all of that is the introduction about herbicides in general and glyphosate and why people <laughs> care so much about them. And now um, let's jump into the paper. 
Can you just remind us what the paper was called? Um, the paper was called the Cyanobacterial Anti-Metabolite. We know now what that is. Mm. 7-deoxycetoheptalose blocks, the, mm-hmm. blocks the Shikimata pathway that we also know now what it does um, to inhibit the growth of phototrophic organisms. Cool. Okay. Um, yeah. So what they did is for a while researchers knew that in the supernatant, so the stuff that's above your culture, like the liquid above your actual um, cells in a culture, um, of biofilm producing Synecococcus elongatus, which is a um, uh, cyanobacterium, includes a compound that kills other photosynthetic organisms. Mm-hmm. So that has been sort of hanging around that knowledge that yeah, if you have if you grow them for a long time, the liquid becomes toxic to other photosynthetic organisms. Um, and this Synecococcus elongatus is a very commonly used lab strain. It has a fairly small genome. Mm-hmm. It's very well understood. Um, it has beautiful membranes. It has beautiful membranes. It's, yeah, it's used often also in, in photo, uh, studies of photosynthesis because it's uh, like I think it's it's used as a stand-in to the precursors uh, of the the cyanobacteria that were once engulfed by a eukarya to to create um, you, um, the chloroplast. Right, that's often where I see it in in studies. Or maybe I mix it up with Synecocystis, which is another <laughs> cyanobacterium. But yeah, it's. Um, it's used a lot in, in research and now there is this people sort of knew, yeah, it becomes toxic, but nobody really knew why. What what is the compound that makes it toxic to phototrophic mm-hmm. so to other so phototrophic organisms are organisms that rely on photosynthesis to get their energy. So the first thing they did is they tried to extract this com- compound. Um and they had uh, several week old cultures and then they did um, extraction procedures and they were quite complicated, but in the end successful. So they um, performed several steps of chromatography, like several different types of chromatography where they uh, separate the compounds within the mix and then try to uh, isolate this one compound. And finally they got it. Um, They performed some um, mass spectrometry on it to find its uh, chemical structure and then some uh, NMR so nuclear magnetic resonance mm-hmm. spectroscopy where they then figure out the structure of the compound um, and just that alone it was like the first bit of this paper this is already quite a lot of work sure and yeah. that other people would just stop there and publish that and say like we found the compound mm. um, but they they went further so they found a compound and, and this compound is called 7-deoxycetoheptulose mm-hmm. and from now on we're just going to call it 7-DSH now we need a catchy name Yoram no it's 7-DSH it's 7-dish 7-dish seven dish. Dish. it's like 7-up but 7-dish okay wow <laughs> We are not um, good at this. So, already um, means that it's, it's a type of sugar. Um, so, yeah, structurally it's a sugar, and it already tells us it's different from from other uh, herbicides like glyphosate, which is not a sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this compound has been described before. There are some ancient papers um, that describe this, this uh, compound, but they never really studied it. Um, so based on then that extract a compound and they synthesized it and it was actually very simple to synthesize so once they knew the structure of it there was a simple precursor and uh, one enzymatic step that they did in in vitro so not in the living organisms they added a transcatalase um, and then they had this compound so biochemically speaking a very simple procedure where usually you might have several um, steps of reaction there you had your two substrates uh, enzyme and you had the, the finished compound and once they had the compound now they could do way more testing um, so now they knew what it looks like but they had no idea how it actually works mm-hmm. um, so what they came up with is a quite clever system as I found they used um, synecocystis cells um, that are nitrogen starved so this is a different organism than the original organism that was synecococcus that was synecococcus this is now synecocystis um, another very well uh, um, studied lab strain and when you starve them for nitrogen so they grow on medium that is, doesn't have any mi- nitrogen then they sort of uh, first of all they get chlorotic mm-hmm. which means they lose their chlorophyll they become yeah. kind of yellow they they bleach and yeah they're not green anymore and they sort of get into this dormant state where they just sort of barely survive but don't do anything clinging, like kind of hibernating and clinging on until better days come 
And then when better days come, they reboot their system and in a very predictable and structured way. So they first boot up the basic metabolism, then they start booting up photosynthesis. And when they have that going on, they start up all the secondary metabolites and, and so on and start dividing again. Um, so with this, you can very well study like how far they get in this reboot procedure if you give any compound to them and then figure out yeah, where, it, where it gets stopped. Because cool. by now it could have still been... Um, this compound could block, for example, photosynthesis to kill mm -hmm. phototrophic organisms. Sure. So they wanted to see where that happens. And so they put 70SH into the, the, um, the culture and they could see that the early basic metabolism boot up phase was already blocked. So, um, they so this is like cellular respiration and things like that? Cellular respiration, making um, amino acids to make proteins later on, okay. making like ribosomes, uh, so many of these basic... Um, Starting your building blocks, getting your building blocks ready to go. Getting everything sort of like set up on a table so then you can start making the more complicated stuff later on. Um, and already there, they were blocked and they didn't green, um, so they didn't even get to the photosynthesis. Uh, and then once they knew, okay, it has to be something very early. So then they looked at the metabolites um, mm -hmm. in comparison between the like a treated and a non-treated culture. And they found that, um, yeah, there is a depletion of these amino acids uh, specific like these uh, off to the Shikimate pathway, while other amino acids over accumulate sort of as a as the. The, the cell tries to just make more and more amino acids in general to um, make up for the loss of these specific ones. Probably downstream something saying, hey, we must have something wrong with, with some sort of amino acid generation because we're not getting the proper proteins and therefore let's make them all and they don't know where the blockage is so, so easily sometimes. <coughs> Yeah, and then when they looked deep into this, they they uh, so from based on that they could see that these three amino acids they come from the Shikimate pathway, and then they looked at the metabolites of this pathway, and they saw that the substrate DAHP um, overaccumulates, and the, the the enzyme downstream of that is the DHQ synthase, um, and that seems to be blocked because mm -hmm. sort of everything until then works and and then can't be processed further and builds up this metabolite. And this is one of the very first and essential steps of the Shikimate pathway. So there's no um, like pathway around it. Like mm. Quite often you have less efficient pathways that can compensate for a loss of a certain area. But in this case, this enzyme can't be replaced by any other process. Which is one of the reasons why glyphosate and I guess now this anti-metabolite are such good herbicides because you can't just compensate as a plant. You're, you're done. Yeah, there's no easy way to make up for it. Um, and... Yeah, and the interesting thing is it blocks the same pathway, but at a different step. Like the glyphosate is, has this ESPS enzyme mm -hmm. that's blocked, and now it's a DHQ synthase that's blocked. So is this upstream or like which one's is, I think the uh, the glyphosate blocks downstream okay. of uh, of this compound so because that's one of the earlier. Steps. Yeah, yeah, cool, great. Very early. Um, and now they can use the synthesized compound um, and tested it on a number of organisms to figure out like how effective is it because before they mostly tested it on on cyanobacteria and so yeah the cyanobacteria that are not the cynicococcus they get killed by, uh, by this compound um, but now they they looked at other things so yeah did they have an idea of like what's what's cynicococcus doing that it's, it's getting around this or it doesn't they does didn't go into that pathway? in the paper and i think that um, it might also be a, um, a case of uh, it's secreting it so i think if they would um they would still be sensible to it, uh, sensitive to it, if it would come in a high concentration. Because they saw it with some other cyanobacteria, that um, it's a very dose-dependent manner, and it really mm -hmm. depends on the ratio of the compound of 70SH in the medium compared to the cell density. So, sure. so small cell densities are very um, sensitive to that. While when the culture is already older and grown, it's not as sensitive to mm -hmm. the compound anymore. So that could be a case why they only survive this compound when they're in a late stage, when there's already but, a lot I of mean, them. I mean, also when they're younger, they're still needing to get more amino acids to build up their proteins. So like when they're old, they don't need to make so many new proteins. So then they're obviously less likely to. Yeah. They've already got all their building blocks set up. Yeah. Cool. And very cool. The next thing they tested is uh, the, the yeast, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is like a very basic yeast. Um, I mean, we use it in bread making and beer making and so on. And it's also a, a classic model organism. Um, and that's also um, toxic to the yeast uh, under minim on minimal medium when they are dependent on their own uh, amino acid biosynthesis. Mm -hmm. But on rich medium, when the amino acids are in the medium already, then they can compensate for it, which is very 
uh, easy to understand. And then it also kills Arabidopsis. Um, so the higher plants, green plants, they are definitely sensitive to this herbicide. Um, and they com did all of that in comparison to glyphosate. Mm -hmm. um, and in general, the, all of the trends are similar to glyphosate, which is very like easy to to understand as the same pathway that it's targeted, um, but it is much more potent. So at the same concentration, it's up to 10 times uh, more potent. So um, kills more... Like uh, LD50 lethal dose for yeah. killing, yeah, okay. So it's in, in general, it, it ha uh, had to be, would uh, have to be used in much lower concentration than glyphosate to get the same effect, uh, which is also quite interesting. Mm. So to, to sum all of this work up, They found in 7 DSH a very potent new herbicide that can be an alternative or even a supplement to glyphosate. Mm -hmm. um, because when you yeah, mix the two together, you target two different enzymes in the same pathway. So it's just as um, specific, but uh, it's much harder for any weed to form spontaneous resistances because it would have to mutate two enzymes at the same time to potentially become Uh, resistant and so far as, as this is quite no, new we don't even know if seven if there are resistances to 7 se mm -hmm. dsh it might be that the enzyme can't might be harder be resistant. to mutate yeah yeah well yeah for for glyphosate um this is like has been artificially done and now we see it in nature happen a lot that there is, there's resistance coming up um yeah and 7 dsh comes from a biological source which might be that mean that it might be used in organic farming. So it could... Could be seen as a friendly alternative. Yeah, I mean, now there's um, responsible like legal bodies that have to decide if that comes into the catalog of organic molecules and so on. And this is just an early study, so it's not uh, already... There is no risk assessment yet, so it's not sure, ready for sure, the market sure. or anything. But potentially, if this goes to the market, this would be something where at least the question of does it come... Is it a, a synthetic or a natural product... Um, would mean that it's a natural product and could be used just on that in, in organic farming, which then would lead to a weird world where like one compound like glyphosate is really bad and must not be used at all, while 70 is good because it's organic um, and comes from nature. But it's just hy hypothetically. I, I mean, you, shall, shall we play a game of prediction? I reckon that they'll find that the <laughs> the seven dish is just as bad because, I mean, it comes from a natural source, but probably to make it, they'll end up doing some upscaling, which will involve something which is considered bad by the public and I reckon it will be just as like vilified as But any other herbicide. The acetic acid also comes from chemical synthesis like it's not made Yeah, it's true. It's it's, true. it's not made from organisms, but you can find it in some like fungal strains that I make do it. Do not understand the legislation <laughs> here, but okay, that's a different issue. That's a political issue. That's not our problem. Yeah. So this it will it will just be interesting to see. I guess in maybe three, five. 10 years time we will see it um, used um, because apparently the synthesis is fairly straightforward um, and I mean now the next step is like crop plants and stuff like this to see what the effect is on for yeah. example monocots and see how they respond um, yeah yeah Cool. Yeah. And just some final thoughts on this. So um, how come this very well-known and very often used lab strain produces such an important compound? I mean, this is the first time that a natural compound has been found to target this Shikimata pathway and the second compound ever that we know of to specifically target this pathway. Before we just had glyphosate, nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll go into that a little bit in the paper and they speculate that first of all they did a re-isolate of this biofilm producing strain so they didn't use a lab strain that was around forever but they re-isolated although i didn't uh, understand where from but okay so it's sort of a fresh isolate mm -hmm. um and often other labs rely on non-biofilm producing strains because they're easier to handle sure And um, that might these strains might not produce the compound. So in, in biofilms, you have like this special community of these cyanobacteria that produce compounds to suppress the growth of other things around them and so on. So it's a very different environment for them than for something that doesn't make a biofilm and is just in solution. Um, then the other thing is that these old strains are often not analyzed but discarded when you have an old, like a four-week-old culture You don't really use it anymore. It's past its prime, yeah. Yeah, you just like, ah, oh, this is too old. You you like autoclave it and pour it away. And um, this might be another reason why this was overlooked for so long because just nobody cared for this step. Mm. Um, 
And then the question of how can they actually do that? Because we know the genome very well and there are no major like clusters that indicate that there might be a, a hidden pathway to produce this compound um, is that they speculate that this transcatalase that they used for the synthetic production of it um, is also present in the uh, synecococcus. And it's a fairly simple enzyme that actually does something else in, in regular metabolism, but it can also have this additional role of Moon doing this lighting function where it has extra jobs. Yeah. And cool. so this might be how this organism has this hidden metabolic pathway in it that we can't see on a genomic level because it's actually mm -hmm. something that does something completely different and then only under certain conditions like when the culture is old and there's over accumulation of certain substrates then these get com combined by an enzyme in a sort of unusual process and produce this compound that is now very valuable for us yeah very nice that's the paper Woo! <coughs> Oh no, and then Yoram dies quietly, no, loudly, no, not no. quietly. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't go quietly. <laughs> yeah, so that's my paper. Did you bring a paper, Tegan? I know that you did. <laughs> no, I, I forgot, yeah. Um, yeah, today I'm going to be talking about something that came out in Nature Plant at the end of last year. So maybe it's a little bit old compared to what we've been doing um, the last few weeks. And it's about organelle DNA degradation. The title is Organelle De DNA Degradation Contributes to Efficient Use of Phosphate in Seed Plants. So I think it's pretty cool because I'm interested in chloroplasts and what they're mainly talking about is degradation of mm -hmm. chloroplast DNA. Um, so as a basic introduction, most of you already know that like plastids, chloroplasts and their, their other like chloroplast-like friends um, and also mitochondria have their own genome. And this is because these organelles were originally individual organisms which got engulfed and over time they kind of became enslaved and the genome got reduced but um <laughs> enslaved. enslaved i always like it like that but it's, yeah yeah it's well true. i mean yeah they they now rely on the nucleus to give them all the things they need but they do still have their own genome it's just a very reduced genome compared to the original yeah. organism before it was enslaved um so for example um plastids they encode for like 120 genes like 80 proteins um encoded there in the genome Whereas originally the cyanobacteria, which would be their ancestor, had like many, many times more. So um, yeah, 10 times more, 100 times more, something like this, um, genes. So they're strongly reduced in size, um, these genomes of the mitochondria and the plastid. But despite this, at least for the plastid, there are many, many copies of the plastid genome in a leaf. So in each cell of a leaf, you have like one copy of the nuclear genome. I mean, it's in the diploid state. So there's two lots of each chromosome but yeah and under certain cases in leaves there can be multiple copies also in the nuclear genome but it's but the standard is kind of like a yeah a and it's still order of magnitudes less than what you find in the plastic genome right yeah so like in leaf mesophyll cells of arabidopsis for example um you get the more than 1000 copies of the chloroplast genome so this this small chloroplast genome it's small in size it's small in, in like kilobase pairs but there's like thousands of copies of it. And this is because each chloroplast itself has about 10 copies of the genome, something in this range or tens of copies. Whereas there are like 80 to 100 chloroplasts per each of these cells. So then you end up with um, thousands. And this can be even higher in like developing leaves and in different species. So you can get tens of thousands of copies of the chloroplast genome. And all in all, this means that the chloroplast DNA, despite the chloroplast genome being so small, can actually make up like a third of the total cellular DNA in leaf tissue, which is, which is pretty cool. And I mean, this DNA is obviously made up of nucleic acids and nucleic acids, as we discussed before, like a couple of weeks ago, they have nitrogen in them, um, but they're also a major sink for phosphorus because we know that DNA has this phosphate sugar backbone. Um, and for example, um, ribosomal RNA, which ribosomal RNA is produced in huge quantities of the chloroplasts, could be half of the total nucleic acid pools in the whole leaf. And therefore, you've just got this huge source of like organic phosphorus, like existing also in, in the RNA. So the DNA has a ton and then they're making a lot of RNA, which also has a ton. So you have this just bulk of phosphorus, which is ready to use basically, um, but it's sitting there in DNA mm. or RNA in the chloroplasts. Okay, so why this is relevant is because phosphorus is a very important resource for plants and they 
they obviously need it. So we know that we yep. actually add phosphorus to our fields, as you just talking about, like when yep. farming. Fertilizers, we add nitrogen and phosphorus, and it's a very important compound. And so also the the artificial creation of both of these, like of, of ammonia and also phosphate um, for, for fertilizers was like a major breakthrough for agriculture because yeah, plant plants need it so much. Mm. So one of the discussions in the literature has been that if this phosphorus is kind of hanging around in the DNA, the plants might be able to use that as like a storage molecule almost. And then when they need the phosphorus, they can degrade the DNA and thus have a like readily available source of organic phosphate. So this is super cool. And um, this group has discussed like the way that different nucleases can digest DNA. And um, one of the things they mentioned that is that um, some people who are working with animals might already know about a certain nuclease called endog. Um, and this is a one of the, the best to find digesting DNA, DNA digesting nucleases, um, which breaks down uh, DNA in male gametes. So basically... Mm. Um, yeah, when, when the cells go through the sexual reproduction, then they only keep half of the genome, right? They become yeah, haploid but this and... Is, oh, wait a minute, sorry. This is specific for the mitochondrial DNA. So okay. um, in, the, in the male um, gamete, you still have the the dad's DNA from the meiosis, so this is what you're talking about. But then the mitochondrial DNA of the father often gets digested. And this is this idea that like all of us have this mitochondrial Eve. So there's a mm. common source of most of our mitochondrial DNA and you can trace it through your mother and not through your father because the egg from like our mother has mitochondrial DNA in it yeah. still, but the sperm from the father just gives a nuclear DNA. And it's because the mitochondrial DNA has specifically been broken down and that's been done by this endogene nuclease ah, okay. in, in animals. Um, okay. Yeah. And this group previously found something that they thought would be very similar to that in plants. So they found something that they called DPD1, um, and it was a nuclease, so it breaks down DNA. Um, and they thought it might have a role in breaking down, again, the male DNA, so from the pollen, um, to get rid of this. But actually... <coughs> What they found is that although they had this this nuclease, which did seem to work and it did seem to degrade organella DNA somewhat in the in the male gametophytes, they couldn't really link it to this phenomenon of um, maternal inheritance of the mitochondria. So this didn't seem to be the, the main role. So their previous results were a little bit inconclusive. They're like, okay, it could be somehow involved in degrading organella DNA, but this doesn't seem to be its its main function. So maybe it has a more general function. And the point of this paper is to try and find out what exactly why is this guy important if it's not important in this embryogenesis what's what's it doing and the dpd1 was found to be conserved in flowering plants and they also found it was in in gymnosperm so um it seemed like it was something that was fairly important usually we say things that are more conserved have like some sort of important role yeah um so the first thing in the paper they did was try to find out what this dpd1 actually does and they did some in vitro experiments. So as Yoram explained, this is instead of looking at the function within the organism, you take out the stuff from the organism, put it in a test tube and see how it reacts. So um, they basically purified the DPD1 enzyme from the plants and um, then looked to see how well it could digest mm -hmm. different nucleic acids. And their result was that it was specifically degrading DNA. It didn't degrade RNA not even when RNA was in the double-stranded form. So this mm. is something where RNA is usually a single strand, but occasionally you can get double-stranded um, RNA. And the same for DNA, it's usually in a double strand, but it does become single-stranded at some points, like when it's opened up for replication, yeah. uh, for transcription, sorry, also replication. Um, but it, it specifically was working on DNA. So. And on single-strand or double-stranded DNA? Uh, it says irrespective of, of the structure, okay. it, was, it was aiming for DNA. Okay. Um, they also found that it was dependent on a metal ion, so magnesium um, in this point, and they also found that it had exonuclease action, which means it's working from the outside, not like internally, and it's working from the three prime to five prime. So it just basically has a direction that it, it eats things in from mm -hmm. one end of the strand to the other end, not, not yeah. backwards, which is quite common for these kind of enzymes. They usually have like yeah. specific rules for how they do things. Um, once they found out what it does, which was it breaks down DNA specifically, they wanted to know where it does it. Um, so first they looked into nesting leaves because they found from their previous data and they did transcriptomics, which is where you look at um, the expression of your genes of interest in different conditions, for example. And they had seen that 
their DPT-1 transcript was increasing as leaves were senescing. Yeah, so senescing is just uh, aging. It's the senescence, it's the, the breakdown at the end of a life cycle of an organism, in this case of the, of the leaves. And that's what we see when leaves like turn yellow uh, in, in, in fall or uh, in general, any plant, when it gets old, they get go into a senescence and then they start using, like breaking down specifically or sometimes non-specifically, breaking down the um, things in the cell to make it either available for future generations or just in general, it's just breakdown processes. Yeah, so um, yeah, they confirmed that this was indeed happening, that their their gene of interest was increasing with senescence. And then they took their plants and they put them in dark. So you can also force senescence by basically putting plants in the darkness because they basically starve and, and die very quickly. And they found that when they had the wild type, you have at the start of the, um, the dark period, you have like 400 to 600 copies of um their, their chloroplast um, DNA in the system they were using. So mm -hmm. 600 copies of chloroplast DNA per every half haploid copy of the, the nuclear G DNA. But after five days in um, the dark, the wild type had like less than 100 mm -hmm. copies. So there's this, this fairly rapid, from a plant life point of view, decrease in the, the chloroplast DNA, which means the chloroplast DNA is being degraded. Yeah, so they lose about like 80%. Yeah, quite, yeah. quite quickly. But this is not the case in the mutant of this DPD1. So if you don't have this thing that specifically degrades um, DNA, you don't get a degradation, which is a nice kind of <coughs> nice fit for the puzzle. In fact, it, it maintained a lot of its chloroplast DNA even after five days in darkness. Um, they also mentioned that the DPD1 seems to be dual targeted, not just to the chloroplast, but it also goes to the mitochondria. And they recognize the same kind of trend um, with mitochondria, so there was not the decrease in the mutant of the mitochondrial DNA once it was put in the darkness. But it's a little bit tricky because mitochondrial DNA in mature leaves, there's very few copies of it actually. So mm. even though there's many, many mitochondria, each mitochondria actually has less than one copy of DNA. So it was a little bit hard for them to um, really yeah. like quantify this. And they said, okay, DPD1 seems to maybe be involved in this kind of senescence-induced degradation of mitochondrial DNA, but mitochondrial DNA anyway degrades well before um, cellular maturity, and this is probably not related to this DPD1. It's probably a different system yeah. or a different enzyme. Um, yeah, so because this DPD1 mutant had lower degradation of the, the chloroplast DNA, it also had this kind of stay green effect. Um, so this means like, yeah, under the dark conditions or under any senescence conditions, it doesn't basically go senescent as fast. So it has like longer um, chloroplast activity. Mm. But I mean, this was quite a weak effect. And also they said like, it's probably almost a secondary thing where, I mean, you have more chloroplast DNA, therefore you have more transcripts, therefore the photosynthetic apparatus just kind of hangs around for a bit longer, but it's not really, it's not the main, the main factor. Um, what might be a main factor, in fact, is this link between breaking down this chloroplast genome and getting the recycling of phosphorus. So they reasoned that if this breakdown was important for making phosphorus available for other parts of the cell, then the mutant would suffer more if there wasn't phosphorus because it can't recycle. And that's indeed what they saw. So they put their, their wild type and, and the mutant onto media which had less phosphorus in it, and the mutant got very sick very fast, whereas the wild type looked okay. And what's more, you could recover the sickness of the mutant by adding extra phosphorus to the media. So mm. it really was a, an issue of there not being enough phosphate stores to put into its newly growing leaves. Um, and they also saw that over time, when there was limiting phosphate, the, the wild type was able to take the phosphate from its lower leaves and reallocate it to its young, newly growing leaves. Mm. So the ones that grew after the phosphate became limiting, the wild type just like was like, all right, these old leaves are done. We need to grow new leaves. Let's take the phosphate out and put it into the new ones. These these old ones can senesce more fastly, so they break down and yeah. and fuel new growth. But the mutant wasn't able to do that, so it basically kept all of its phosphate where it was, um, and therefore had some problems growing the new leaves. It not only had problems growing leaves, but it also had problems making seeds. Um, so it produced less seeds, especially when the phosphate was limiting, which is not only a huge problem for the plant individually for the next generation, but also obviously as humans, we're interested in seeds because that's where our crops come from. So yeah, yeah it's pretty important. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so I think one of the other cool things about the paper is once they had found this link between like phosphorus and organelle degradation and this this gene in particular, they went then went kind of like into the field, and they looked at um, this uh, levels of this uh, protein in a tree. So they mm-hmm. looked at Poplus alba, which is a deciduous tree which loses its leaves basically therefore um, <laughs> in the winter time. Um, and therefore, they thought like, okay, this this protein could be useful, as you mentioned, in the senescence, which re- involves remobilization. So the leaves turn orange, and all the stores, including the phosphorus phosphate, yeah. get taken out of them and yeah. put into like storage, so that then when the spring comes again, they can they have a residue of of nutrients and can immediately make new leaves very quickly and don't have to rely to like slowly take them up from the soil and so on. Yeah. Um, so there's previously been studies which show that in the populus alba, about 60% of the phosphorus is taken from the leaves and remobilized so that those leaves that fall, they're, they're not losing all of the stocks of the plant. So um, this group took leaves off the populus tree, like in the backyard or something, every month from like bud break. So this is spring when, when the first leaf buds come out um, around April to like when the leaves fall. So... Yeah, and they did this over three years. So they're just taking, collecting these leaf samples over three years and over over each month. Um, and again, indeed, they found that the chloroplast DNA levels were much more abundant in the spring, and they of course decreased in autumn um, when the leaves were about to fall. And they found that in popular this um, DPD1 homolog was also highly upregulated at the end with the leaf fall. So they think that again you have the same conserved role where dpd1 is involved in breaking down this chloroplast dna because they saw a correlation between the dpd1 amounts and the what well, negative correlation and the chloroplast dna amounts and then letting it be recycled the the phosphate recycled by the plant cool yeah so i think this was a super nice paper just because um yeah it it kind of links all these different like really important plant factors and nutrient cycling. So you have this impact of like time, so seasonality for the populace. For the Arabidopsis, you have this time of life effect where you need to put your storages into your seeds. Um, It's interesting that this is also conserved even in evergreen um, plants. So it can also be adaptive. So like if there's phosphorus limitations, you can then adapt and like get rid of your old leaves so there's kind of different different angles where this this pathway can be super super useful um yeah and and they said basically from their results they think that what's most likely is this chloroplast dna is being used directly so the phosphorus is being taken and immediately used but it could also be that the breakdown of the chloroplast dna is in a sensor which then helps the plant like store or upregulate some other pathways related to phosphorate, phosphorus um, storage and like, yeah. yeah. Um, but I really liked the paper because I think it was very nicely written. It's very easy to follow. You can just read the text and understand it, or you can just look at the figures and understand it, which is kind yeah. of cool and unique. Um, yeah, and they had some nice controls and everything. So I would I would recommend it as quite a, yeah, yeah quite a cool, easy paper to read. And yeah, yeah, it's very nice. As always, the link will be in the description to this episode. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool to to learn about these recycling processes, right? Like we, as as humans, we have this this constant concern with, uh, unfortunately, not that constant, not that often, but we have this concern about using what we have as like valuable material and recycling it and not, not putting it on a landfill. And plants are doing exactly that, right? They have very valuable material stored in the DNA. And instead of just sort of dropping the leaves with the DNA in them and sort of having microorganisms have a go at it, they make they sure that they, they take it back and that they really efficiently uh, recycle all of these compounds that were like hard for them to get before, right? Like mm. It's not something that they it's not a commodity that they have it's really valuable to have the phosphorus and the nitrogen in the dna i really find that i I really like that cool yeah so um with that we go to my favorite plant my favorite plant this week is uh, magnolia um, and I only have a few things about magnolia, um, but they're really cool because they evolved flowers before bees evolved. 
And if you, in general, like plants, the flowering plants rely on pollinators and often bees to come in, um, drink some of the nectar, take some pollen in the in the process, and fly to the next flower of the same species and bring the pollen over there, and then. Um, yeah. get some diversity in by mixing up different flowers from different plants and and in general just like help them to get to the next generation um and magnolia did all that um before bees were around um and so they rely on pollination by beetles and as a result of that or as a necessity to that is because beetles are so much um so much less careful than bees when it comes to flowers <laughs> they had to be really robust so that now if you look at the flowers of magnolia they have um, a very a typical morphology um, they have tough petals which are actually not petals uh, on on a taxonomic level they are a, a bract mm -hmm. which is a different it's type a of leaf tissue that has yeah it's basically a, a, specialized, a specialized leaf specialized with leaf, color yeah. but uh, and that doesn't do photosynthesis but it's yeah it's not a petal it's not a, like the it's the petals delicate on the flower. and petal yeah um, and then they have like these deep star-shaped goblet-like flowers that are very robust and also mm -hmm. the, the um, stigma in there. So the holders of the pollen are way more robust than other species. Um, and so yeah, in general, they have just this robust thing so that like these very clumsy beetles can sort of like with their hard shell fall in there and tumble around and then like still get, <laughs> get some drunk, pollen. Get <laughs> drunk, like yeah. knock things off a bit, like yeah, get a bit rowdy. Sort of the hooligans in the insect world. <laughs> um, and they can come in there and still these flowers stay intact and don't don't break, um, which I found quite cool. And there's uh, magnolia, uh, because they evolved these flowers before bees evolved, they um, are really old. There is fossils ex uh, with from from magnolia that exist that are 20 million years old, um, and I found that quite cool. And I found the idea quite cool that I have like these robust, like specialized organs mm. that clumsy beetles can interact with. Yeah, it's actually um, a couple of weeks ago you did your favorite plant um, was this thing that was um, pollinated by nice. a mouse. Yeah. I think this is kind of a little bit of a fetish with you now, pollination. <laughs> You're almost having a baby soon. There might be some sort of like weird theme getting worked into here. But it's similar things to these um, plants, which are pollinated typically by, by rats or mice or like kind of big marsupials like possums and stuff. They also have to have these really robust flowers and other features that yeah. like specialize them. So. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And magnolia, like uh, Doro just told me today, that magnolia are now um, yeah, in season. You can find them now in flower stores now, now as a time of recording, not at a time of listening. <laughs> then it will be too late, unfortunately. Poor you missed business. it. Wait for next year now. <laughs> no, but spring is happening in Germany and we are super excited. Yes, it's getting so much nicer now. And magnolia are blooming and um, yeah, creating... Like If you see a magnolia in the street, have a look at the flowers and see how tough they are. And maybe you can find a beetle inside that's like going on a rampage. Yeah. So do you have something more for this week? Yeah, I have some kind of like weird facts, but they're not super plant related. So the first one, I think I... I'm not even sure how I found it, but it's on the <laughs> um, science homepage and it's called The Celebrity Cat. This celebrity cat has broken the internet. Now we have its genome. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> that obviously caught which my eye. Wait, let me guess. Which one is it? Is it Grumpy Cat? It's not Grumpy Cat. Is it um, that cat that ran a train station? No. Um, is it Keyboard Cat? No. Have you I heard of it. Little Bub? No. Okay, it's... Um, not a celebrity to me. Yeah. It's not in my cat celebrity book. Okay, Yoram has like a little flip card book. He collects like the trading yeah, cards. As I was speaking, cats. I was flipping through like, it. Okay, so you're missing little bub. <laughs> um, yeah, so she has like a, a whole lot of congenital abnormalities. So little bub is this, this weird looking cat. I can I show know, you. I know, it's like Look at its face. It looks completely yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, it's now got that its I see the face, I, I remember it. Yeah. It looks a little bit messed up and it has like extra toes. It's limbs are too short its tongue kind of hangs out of its mouth because it's got like deformities in the face um and people have now there was a crowdfunding effort and they've now sequenced its genome to find out what the the genetic um meaning of, of the course different there is a crowdfunding <laughs> sequence yeah. a weird internet <laughs> but it's kind of cool um so that was one of my facts because it was cat related and the other one is a little bit more serious and also not overly related to plants but just generally related to science um as a whole and this is again from a couple of weeks ago. I saw, I think even on my um, Google notifications, this came up that the University of California has recently boycotted um, Elsevier, mm -hmm. which is one of the, the big um, giants in the publishing world. So they publish a lot of the scientific journals um, because they're trying to 
push them to become more open access. And um, this was like at the start of Feb, uh, the end of February, but also um, I think at the end of January, there was something in Germany. Yeah, ongoing for a while now. Last year, there was um, all of last year, there were big negotiations between the university libraries and Elsevier about the uh, subscriptions. And Wiley, Wiley as well. So um, there was this thing called Project Deal in Germany, where basically all the big institutions, all the big universities boycotted um, these big um, publishing giants. So, so Wiley was one of them and said, hey, we need to work out a better way to make science more accessible. And this is a really big deal to us because open access is, is a major problem that a lot of really important science, which is it's relevant for the humans, uh, for humans for, for all of us, for human knowledge, um, is stuck behind paywalls. And scientists have said this is a problem because often as a scientist who is doing the research, you have to pay to get your research published. And then you have to pay again to look at other people's research. And obviously that has like really big impacts where people in less rich institutions or in less rich countries have less access to the scientific knowledge. And that really keeps them behind because they can't yeah. see what's happening and therefore they can't be like yeah. as up to date as everyone else. So this is now a new thing that's happening. And especially now that like publications used to be in print. So then there was a really huge cost of like sending out the prints. And now those costs, some would say, have gone down. I'm not sure. I mean, everything's online, so that also has its own associated costs. But um, there's but just to, for for some numbers, like when you pay, when you publish your paper, you pay several hundred dollars or euros, depending. Um, it on also it always d depends a little bit on on the amount that you publish and if you have color figures or black and white figures, which is ridiculous which in is nowadays. It's changing now. This is like less of a big deal <coughs> now. Yeah. Yeah, but still, you pay several hundred uh, euros for your publication and it gets sent out to an editor who often does the work as uh, in as unpaid labor who sends it then out to reviewers who don't get paid for it which is also sort of important for the entire system to be like fair and neutral that there's no people having an interest of gain there but so these people sort of work for free and then it goes to the publisher when it's all accepted and then the the cost for the publisher then are like layouting and service and publishing it mm. um, and then again they get money when people want to read this so they get sort of paid by both sides and a, a majority of the work is doesn't come at a cost to the publisher and i mean we're not going to say that this doesn't cost money to put stuff online and to make it accessible and i mean all of this is obviously also a cost but the idea is not to burden the journals with the cost it's to make it more of a de democratic process that more people have more access to um yeah the work and especially in the case where where um in many countries a lot of the science is actually publicly funded which means that taxpayers are paying to get this this science like discovered and then those same taxpayers can't even read their own science officially the, the effectively the science that they paid for yeah. they can't get to it so i think this is kind of a cool thing um and at least the project deal just came at the end of January to quite a successful um, solution. Um, so that's like kind of worked out quite nicely. And now it looks like um, like yeah. the US is also following on in the footsteps. So yeah, it's and, and even Wiley, I think they made a comment of saying, hey, this is like, we're excited about this because this is how this is how things are progressing and it's time for us to catch up with with the changing times and yeah, yeah, yeah I think so Elsevier nice. is the one that's like lobbying the hardest against all of these movements. Um, in a, in a presentation, I've seen the profit margins of publishing houses, and they're in the range between like 20 and 30 percent, mm -hmm. while stuff like Google or Apple, they when they go really well, they have like about 9 to 10 percent of profit margin. Mm -hmm. So they are much more, much higher profit margins than like the biggest companies in the world. Yeah, but I mean, profit margin is not absolute profit as well. So just like, that's what we no, keep no, in this, mind as well, right? Like, this, is, this is the profit margin in these, these calculations of like after all expenses, like... This is not this is not the, the turnaround. This is um, the profit that they get. So I'm just I personally I'm an, I'm really not a fan of Elsevier and these publishing houses. Um, but in, yeah, it's really cool that there's more and more movement now and like organized movement. Yeah, in any case, if if the aim is to make things more open access for the whole world, more democratic, like this is this is yeah. what we're all all pro. And I mean, and we rely on it. Like in our work here now, we try to to get open access papers because when we talk about them, we want you to be able to read them. And if they are behind sometimes payables. it's super hard. Like sometimes we can only find stuff from the seventies or like yeah. like very early research because um all the new stuff is behind a paywall. Like. So it's it's a problematic, but we try our best uh, in in that case, and it's it, it just shows you like if you would imagine a world where all of this would be open, how much more how much easier it would be to also communicate this research. How many more people could like use that 
outside of academic structures for personal education to to understand bigger processes in the world mm. all of that is is hindered now by these paywalls yeah i mean what's the point of telling the public hey you should care about science if we also at the same time are saying hey you can't like you yeah. don't have access to this science yeah. like Pay only we're allowed to read it article to read and it. it can be insane like some things i'm looking at they're like yeah really like a hundred bucks to read this for two weeks and it's like i don't have that kind of money like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's my cool fun fact of the day. Yeah, that's that's very important. And please don't use um, SciHub to easily unlock all of your uh, documents. This is illegal. Uh, SciHub.tw is a website that you should not use for any of these uh, purposes to unlock paywalled papers. Um, and with that, <laughs> the shit. <man. laughs> oh, then we get sued. <laughs> Um, no, I, I said they should not use that. They should not use that. No, it's, it's really, it, it <laughs> okay. harms the publishers. You uh, don't want to harm the publishers. All right, I think we need to wrap up now. Yeah, so now... Um, dun, 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 dun. No, first of all... <laughs> No, that's the music for the favorite plant, Ian. Sorry, I think get it's not your, even that music. I right. think I was doing like... Um, I was doing chopsticks or something. So, um, <laughs> if you... If you like this episode, um, please share us. Uh, we, you can find our, you can find us on Twitter where we are at pla uh, plants pipettes, uh, on Instagram and Facebook where we are at plants, plants and, and pipettes. Um, you can leave us a review on iTunes that would help us a great uh, deal to become more visible and have more people listen to this podcast. As always, we're very happy to hear your feedback on ways that we can improve the podcast, on suggestions of things you want us to talk about on the podcast or even on the blog as well. Yeah, uh, you find um, a comment section under the, the episode on our website, which is plantsandpipettes.com. Or just you at us. At us on, on Twitter, uh, on, on Facebook, wherever you find us. We're pretty much any, everywhere. Um, and yeah, we're um, happy for your feedback. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And uh, see you next time. Bis nächste Mal. Next week on the podcast, I'm going to be talking about Crocus sativus, which is also known as saffron and its mysterious origins. And I will be talking about uh, a little dragon in the cell that will help us uh, or helps the cell to not misfold any protein. A crouching dragon. A crouching dragon. See you next time. See you next time.